Hi, welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. Each week on this podcast, we give you simple strategies to improve your body, mind, and well-being. Sometimes life throws major hurdles in your path, or even worse, a tragedy pushes your mental health to the limit. But until it happens, you may not know how you'll handle the stress or trauma those situations can cause. How do people manage to get through these tough times? One skill that researchers say can make a big difference is resilience. Resilience is the ability to bounce back from adversity and deal with life's downturns and challenges, even when those events are so overwhelming or devastating that you think you might never recover. Researchers have started to learn more about how people can use it to ease the toll of stress on their lives and their health. Some organizations, from hospitals to corporations to even the U.S. Army, are working on training people to become more resilient. We reported a story on those efforts recently, and we'll include the link in our show notes. Can you learn resilience, and why should you? Those are the questions we're putting to WebMD's medical editor, Dr. Neha Pathak. Hey, Dr. Pathak, good to see you. Hi, how are you? I'm doing all right. Resilience is often talked about as a trait that some people have and others don't, but that's not really what researchers have come to believe, right? What exactly is resilience? Sure. So I think it's just like you say, it's really the ability to move forward in the face of challenges and in some cases, catastrophic challenges. So how do we bounce back in that setting and why are some people seemingly better at it than other people? And I think that's really the question that researchers have taken up, because if you think about it, we have always noticed and there are religions that have been built around trying to help people deal with difficult situations. Right. So researchers are coming at it to, from a different angle and trying to understand what is it that makes one person better at it than another and can you teach it to somebody? Can we improve resilience in people that don't seem to have that? And looking at a lot of studies from various types of populations, people with different characteristics, people in different, completely different situations, we find that the researchers think that about 50%, so half of resilience may be just the way that you are born, so genetics, your personality traits, and just the way you see the world. Sure. But there is a large amount of room, so another 50% for improvement, where your world, the environment, the things around you really can affect how you respond to challenges. Some of that could even be how you uh, decide that you want to approach something even. Absolutely. And we should mention here that resilience training won't take the place of getting help for mental health problems if you need it. But what are some of the benefits that you might get from learning to become more resilient? One of the earliest places that people started even paying attention to this was research done by Carol Dweck in a book called Mindset. And that's where she really talked about people being kind of open to challenges and having a mindset of growth versus a fixed mindset where people just kind of thought, that's just the way it is and I just have to deal with what's going on. Or I'm no good and nothing, this will never change. It's kind of like that mentality of all or none. Right. I'm always going to be bad at this. I'm never going to be able to do this versus can I grow? Can I change? 
that kind of thing. So really what we're trying to do is show people that they can increase their capacity to manage things that are going on in life. And you can reframe how you see situations so that you can handle it better. A lot of times, a lot of these things come in the setting of loss. Right. So loss of control, lo catastrophic losses. Resilience training doesn't mean that loss will never happen. It doesn't mean that you'll never have a stressor again in your life. Mm -hmm. What it just means is that I have the capability of dealing with this loss. And that's what you're trying to help people learn to say in those situations. Right, sort of strengthening the tools that you have to deal with something that comes your way. Right, that change is going to happen and I am capable of changing as well in that situation versus it's always going to feel like this or be like this. Right, that would be very valuable. Um, why is it that researchers are interested in studying resilience? Probably a lot of people are hearing what we're talking about and thinking, yeah, this is just kind of common sense. You want to be able to increase your capacity. And yes, we know that there are probably ways that you can do this. Um, but what researchers are really trying to do is trying to fill in the pieces of the puzzle. So what is it about a certain person or certain communities that when they manage loss, they do it more successfully than others. And what can we learn from these situations? The reason we want to know this is because we know that loss can happen, catastrophes can happen. We know the pieces of the puzzle that can help people come back together, then we can help people learn about what they can do in those situations. Let's say you're hearing this and you think, hey, this is a skill I want to work on. What are some ways that you can teach yourself and practice resilience in everyday life? Sure. So some of the things that has come out of this research is that some of the pieces are physical health, emotional health, right. economic stability. So now that we know that these are some important pieces, we have to kind of think about, well, how can we put this to practice in our life? So the first thing that no matter whether or not we talk about diabetes or resilience, we're gonna talk about the importance of physical health. Right. So eating healthy, getting a lot of exercise, these things help strengthen you physically so in the event of a disaster or catastrophe, you're able to manage. The next thing would be emotional and sort of psychological factors. And th there's a lot of role here for connectedness. So connecting with your community, connecting with people. We know from some of the resilience research, the people that had the most sense of being part of their community or having a role in their community did better in the setting of disasters because they would say, okay, it's now my job to help fix this. And they would find ways to try to help in those situations. Mm -hmm. Another thing is a sense of purpose. And this is something where I think, again, a lot of people will say, yes, that is what my religion or my spirituality gives me. And this is very true. This is borne out in the research as well. People that have come from more faith backgrounds or spiritual backgrounds do tend to have more resilience. 
Again, this could be because of a sense of purpose, a sense of community, um, and other things that we can't necessarily distill down to unique factors. Right. But we know that there is something powerful in being part of a community that practices gratitude. So for those people that really don't feel like they're part of a faith-based community or that's really not their thing, there's other ways to get involved with your community or feel like you have a sense of purpose. So volunteering, finding a community organization that really piques your interest, that makes you feel like you're doing something you're passionate about is a great way of getting involved with your community. Some of the techniques that probably come to mind in our discussion are things like Tai Chi, Mm-hmm. yoga, meditation, and mindfulness. And all of those things are trying to help you refocus your energy and set a goal for what you'd like to accomplish. Right. So what you really do want to do is try to minimize the distractions around you. So like you mentioned, getting help for mental health problems, if there are any, is absolutely an important part of caring for yourself. One of the things that you may want to consider is during your sessions to talk about an interest in resilience and working with your counselor on tips and techniques that you can use specifically for yourself to help improve resilience. There are resilience coaches and resilience classes that you can also take if you're interested. Blood sugar is the main source of energy for your body. When it's too high, like when your last meal was loaded with carbs, or too low, like when you haven't eaten in a while, you don't feel well. But it's not just filling up on carbs and skipping meals that turn your blood sugar around. We have a list of eight things that raise it, and some of them may surprise you. First on the list, dried fruit. Now, fruit is a healthy choice, but the dried versions pack way more carbs in a smaller serving size. Just two tablespoons of raisins, dried cranberries, or dried cherries have the same carbs as a small piece of fruit. Three dates give you 15 grams of them. Next, a bad cold can also affect your blood sugar in a couple of ways. Fighting off an illness causes it to rise, but some cold medicines, like decongestants that have pseudoephedrine or phenylephrine, can make it go up too. If you're watching your blood sugar, check product labels for those ingredients and for other things like sugar and alcohol that are in some cold medicines, or ask the pharmacist to help you choose the right one. And when you're thirsty after a workout, be careful what you reach for to hydrate. Sports drinks are number three on our list. Sure, they help you replenish liquids quickly, but some of them have as much sugar as a soda. If you're doing moderate exercise, plain water is best. What else affects your blood sugar? How about sugar-free foods? That's right, they may not have sugar, but they still have plenty of carbs and starches. So check the total carbohydrates on the Nutrition Facts label before you dig in, especially if you have diabetes. Fifth on our list is caffeine. Even black coffee with no calories added can cause an upswing in blood sugar, thanks to the caffeine. The same goes for black tea, green tea, and energy drinks. Also, high-fat foods like pizza, french fries, and sweet and sour chicken are not only bad for your weight, they can also make your blood sugar stay up for longer. If you have diabetes, check your blood sugar about two hours after you eat to know how a food affects you. And if you think a bagel isn't all that different from a slice of bread, you're wrong. They are packed with more carbohydrates as well as more calories. If you're craving one, go for a mini bagel. 
Finally, some medications can also boost your blood sugar, like corticosteroids, which you might take to treat rashes, arthritis, asthma, and many other conditions. These drugs may even trigger diabetes in some people. Water pills, also called diuretics, that help high blood pressure do the same. And some antidepressants can raise your blood sugar too. Something to keep in mind if you're watching your numbers. For other things that can send your blood sugar up or down, check out our show notes for a link to more info. Hi, I'm Anna Lanfruski, a strategy manager here at WebMD. How much do you know about what can boost and lower your mood? Let's take the quiz to find out. For the first question, is there any truth to that old saying that a good mood is contagious? Turns out there is. If you're around happy people, your mood will rise. Hang out with grouches and you'll get grouchy too. Now for question two. Many of us put on some tunes when we're feeling down, but can music really lift your mood? The answer is no, but that's because not every piece of music is uplifting. Researchers found that people's moods improved when they listened to Mozart, but tanked when they heard music from Schindler's List. Moving on to our next question. Which of these foods can raise your mood? Is it olive oil, salmon, walnuts, or all of the above? The right answer is all of the above. Studies show that people who eat a lot of olive oil are less likely to be depressed. And salmon and walnuts are good sources of omega-3 fatty acids, which could have mood-boosting properties. You know what else they all have in common? They're way healthier than those high-calorie comfort foods we often turn to when we're down. Next up, did you know moods can activate your natural lie detector? It's true, but are you more likely to catch someone in a lie when you're in a good mood, a bad mood, or if you're just neutral? If you want to check someone's honesty, it's best to do it when you're a little grumpy. You're more likely to be skeptical and less easily fooled than when you're happy. Okay, so we hear this one all the time. Exercise can raise your mood, but how does it do that? Is it creating new neurons, boosting blood flow to your brain, raising dopamine levels, or is it all of these things? Well, if you're like me, you're probably not surprised to find that exercise can do all of these things. So if you're feeling a little down, go for a short walk. Remember those movies about grumpy old men? Are we really more likely to be in a bad mood as we get older? Actually, no. Studies show that the older we get, the more we focus on the positive. It could be that people want to make the best of the time they have left. Scientists also think that as we get older, the parts of our brains tied to emotion are more likely to get activated by positive things than negative ones. Here's a question for you former and hopefully soon to be former smokers out there. Do your moods get darker after you quit? The correct answer is no. You may be a little more irritable while you're quitting, but things get sunnier once you've kicked the habit. The folks who did report darker moods were the ones who tried to quit but couldn't. True or false, the weather can affect your mood. This one's true. 
Many studies show that weather can affect how you feel. A sunny day can raise your spirits, and spring fever really is a thing. Speaking of weather, have you heard of seasonal affective disorder? That's when you get the blues because there's less sunlight. True or false, does it only happen in the winter? That's false. Seasonal affective disorder is more likely to happen in the winter when days are shorter, but it can affect you during any season, especially if it's unusually cloudy. Thanks so much for playing along. I hope you did well on this quiz. To learn more about the things that affect your mood, follow the link in our show notes. Now for our tweak of the week, try offering to babysit. Sure, taking care of kids can be a stressful job, but it also has some unexpected rewards. Scientists have found that it may help you live longer. In one study, grandparents who cared for their grandkids lived longer than those who didn't. And this was true despite other things like physical health, age, and income. What's more, the benefits aren't just for grandparents. These perks are for anyone. So take the grandkids for the day, spend the afternoon with your besties brood, or get some quality time with your nieces and nephews. That's all for this week. Thanks to everyone for joining us, and thanks to everyone who's subscribed to the podcast so far. Talk to you next week. Bye.